It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with another message from God's Word. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've tuned in today so that you can continue with us in our study of the subject, Speaking with Tongues. Let's open today's message by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 through 36. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? The rule that none should speak simultaneously, given by Paul in the verses just preceding this passage, applied not only to the tongue speakers, but to all who took part in the service. Even the gift of prophecy could not edify, that is, it could not build up, the church if a group of prophets spoke at the same time. No one could understand their messages either, even though they were speaking in the language of the congregation. The prophets speak two or three, and let the others, this word is plural in the original Greek, let the others judge, or let the others discern. Even the prophets of the assembly were to be limited as to the number who might speak in a single meeting. Only two, or at most three, were to speak in each service. These also were to teach in sequence, not simultaneously. While each prophet speaks in the language understood by all, the church members of the congregation are to discern, to judge, if what they are hearing is truly a prophecy from God or a false prophecy from a lying spirit. The Spirit of God will provide the ability for the hearers of the prophecy to determine its nature and its source. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. In the early church assemblies, the Holy Spirit often gave revelation to members of the congregation as they sat listening to another speaker. When this happened, the one who had received the revelation was to make it known, not by springing up on his feet and pouring out the revelation, but by first asking for the floor after making known the reason for his request. When this happened, the prophet who was speaking was to yield to the prophet to whom the revelation had come. The first prophet could step down and let the second prophet present what God had given him. For ye may all prophesy, God may at various times lead each and every one of you to present a prophecy, one by one, always in sequence, not simultaneously, that all may learn, that all the congregation may receive information that God desires to impart, and all may be comforted, all may be exhorted, that is, that each may release what that is within him, and therefore be relieved of stress. By observing these rules of order, all members of the congregation could take part in the service and properly serve the function that God had assigned. No one would be left out, and the church would be built up in just the way that God had ordained. In verse 32, Paul makes a statement of extreme importance. Many present-day so-called charismatic groups do not follow the rules of order that Paul has so plainly established. They say that they cannot be kept silent because when the Spirit comes upon them, they cannot suppress that which is given. 
the speaking with the tongue simply happens and they have no control over it. Therefore, sometimes many in the congregation do speak with tongues simultaneously. Notice, however, what the inspired apostle says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophet. When inspiration from the Spirit of God comes upon a prophet, his spirit remains under his, the prophet's, control. The Holy Spirit does not override the prophet's will. That which is within the prophet is always under his control. Therefore, when an irresistible force causes one to speak out in a formal church assembly, then the motivating power does not come from the Holy Spirit. This is always the sign that the supernatural power involved comes not from the Spirit of God, but from a demon spirit. The spirits of the prophets are subject to, that is, they're under the control of, the prophet. Speaking out in an uncontrolled way leads to nothing but confusion. The source of the power that leads to this kind of speaking cannot be God, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches, local assemblies of the saints. The source of the problem in the Corinthian church was not God, but other powers. God does not do anything that will lead to confusion in the assembly meetings. Uncontrolled speaking with tongues and prophesying in the Corinthian assembly was being engineered by Satan as he used counterfeit spiritual manifestations to stop the building up of the church. God is not the author of such confusion as the Corinthian church was experiencing. He's a God of peace, of order, and tranquility. Not only is he the God of peace for the Corinthian assembly, but also for all churches, local assemblies everywhere, of the saints, saved ones, Christians. The major subject of Satan's tactics of deceit were the female members of the Corinthian assembly. Just as had Eve been the object of Satan's deceiving wiles in the Garden of Eden, so also were the Corinthian wives the major objects of his wiles as he worked in that city. They were the major recipients of his demonic gifts. They, caught up in the pride of life, not in agape, were only too eager to display these gifts to make themselves famous in the congregation. Many of these Christian women were being misled, and the confusion so created must be stopped. Paul's words of verses 34 and 35 are directed to this problem. Let your women keep silent in the churches, formal worship services, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. It is not permitted for them to take an oral part in the service. That is, women are not to be included in the sequence of prophets and tongue speakers scheduled for a formal church meeting, but rather to be under obedience, that is, subjection, as also saith the law. Paul was emphatic when he made this statement. The Corinthian women, and all women of similar inclination, were not to be permitted to disrupt the assemblies as they had in the past. They were to keep silent as pertaining to public discourse. They were not to be scheduled as speakers, and they were not to interrupt a prophet on the excuse that they had just received a revelation. It was not permitted for them to orate, to address the assembly, to preach, or to speak with tongues. Rather, all women were to be under subjection to Christ as he was represented in their husbands. The order of the formal church meeting was established exactly the same as was the order of the formal Jewish synagogue service. Women were not allowed to speak out in those meetings. Neither were women to be allowed to speak out in the formal worship services of the church. They were to be under obedience as also saith the law, the Jewish law, the regulations of the temple and of the synagogue. 
And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church, in the worship assembly. That is, if the women desire to learn anything beyond what is being presented by the properly recognized speakers in the service, let them wait until the service is ended and then ask their husbands at home. They are not to disrupt the service by interrupting the prophet or the preacher, thus directing his mind and his message away from the main point. This instruction was directed to a specific problem that existed in the Corinthian church, but there have been similar problems in many local assemblies down through the church age. The problem is very widespread in groups today who profess to practice the so-called charismata. The women who were causing the problem in the Corinthian assembly were married to men who were members of that church. Therefore, they did have husbands to ask, and these husbands were qualified to answer their questions. In the last clause of verse 35, Paul says, For it is a shame, a disgrace, for women to speak formally in the church, formal worship service. The apostle to the Gentiles established a rule that pertains to all local assemblies down through the age of grace. God does not call women to preach in the formal church assemblies. God does not give women the gift of prophecy, and he does not place them in the local churches as pastors and preachers. The office of elder is not to be filled by women. The qualification for this office, given in both 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.6, is that the elder or bishop must be the husband of one wife. No woman can meet this requirement. This is God's rule of order, and there is no place in Scripture that we're given authority to change it. As far as the formal worship service is concerned, women are to be under subjection, as also saith the law. This does not mean that women are never to teach God's word or to be witnesses for Christ in the evangelical sense. They are often called to teach Sunday school classes, training unions, missionary classes, and many other training projects of the local church. Women have been called to the very powerful witnessing positions, but they are never called to be formal speakers in an organized worship service. Paul has said it is a shame, a disgrace, an abomination for women to preach and prophesy in the worship service. Paul continues, or went out from you the word of God, or to you only did it arrive. He was saying to the Corinthians, Do you really believe that your assembly is the only source of God's word? Are you really so puffed up that you think that God is using only you as a source of his word, and that you only have been selected out to receive it directly from him? Paul asks these questions because of the attitude that members of the Corinthian assembly had displayed. He anticipated resistance to the teaching that he had just presented. His question is actually given to probe their attitude toward him and toward his office of apostle. Do you think because God has given you such marvelous gifts that you have actually surpassed me in knowledge of his word and that he is now bypassing me and giving you instruction? Are you going to refuse to heed the instruction of this letter because of that personal pride? Do you really think that you are the sole source of all of God's revelation? I see that my time is gone for today. We'll continue our study of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're drawing near the end of our study of speaking with tongues. 
We've considered most of the scriptures that deal with this subject. We're now studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14. To open today's message, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 36 through 40. What? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. In light of those questions asked in verse 36, Paul continues, If anyone thinks a prophet to be, or spiritual, let him recognize the things I write to you, that of the Lord they are commands. We can paraphrase his words as follows. There are many among you who profess to be prophets, or who profess to be strongly in tune with God's Holy Spirit. Here is the test as to whether these individuals actually have the gift of prophecy, or are really deeply spiritual. Let those individuals recognize publicly that the things written in this letter are direct commandments from the Lord. Let that one recognize my spiritual authority and let him recognize publicly that this letter is the very word of God. There were some among the Corinthian assembly, just as there are some among many assemblies today, who would not accept the teachings just presented as commandments of the Lord. These were the ones who were so caught up in their own pride of life that they would not receive true knowledge as it was presented in this letter. It's to them and to their counterparts of today that Paul says, But if any man be ignorant, lacking in knowledge, shunning true knowledge, let him be ignorant, let him remain lacking in true knowledge. Nothing will change the course of the one who has set his mind in opposition to God's commandments. Those who would not accept Paul's authority as the Lord's spokesman were beyond the reach of God's correction. Let them continue on the course that they had chosen for themselves. These would continue to abuse the spiritual gifts that God had given. Some would continue to exercise the counterfeit gifts that Satan had bestowed for the purpose of disrupting God's work in Corinth. Many today continue to disrupt God's work as it's been assigned in many local assemblies throughout the world. They must remain in the state in which this letter finds them. But these were not to be given the upper hand in the Corinthian assembly. They were to be stopped. They were not to lead the others of the assembly down a wrong path. If any man be ignorant, let him remain ignorant. Paul closes this section of his Corinthian letter with some final words of instruction. Wherefore, brethren, covet, be emulous, be ambitious, to prophesy, and to speak with tongues, Glosaeus, forbid not. Let all things be done decently, becomingly, and in order, in sequence. Paul says, Because of all that I have written unto you, brethren, organize your formal assembly in a way pleasing unto God. You should have ambition to be used of God for the presentation of his word to the congregation. You are not to earnestly implore the Holy Spirit to give you this gift because he distributes the charismata as he will. But you should have a desire to be used in this way. Also, you are not to forbid the size of the gift of tongues in the long as you follow the rules that I've given to you. I've told you that this gift was intended as a sign to unbelievers and not a means of edifying the congregation of believers. However, God has given this manifestation, and it does sometimes serve as a sign for unbelievers, even in the formal worship service. Therefore, you should follow the rules, but forbid not 
to speak with tongues. In verse 33, we were told, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God abhors disorder, especially in the formal worship services of his local assemblies. Therefore, let all parts of the service be conducted decently, properly according to God's rules and becomingly according to man's evaluation, and in order, in proper sequence. There is to be an order and a sequence for the singing of hymns, for prophesying by the mouth of several prophets, for speaking with tongues, and for translating those tongues. Proper decorum must always be observed. Selfish motivations on the part of individual church members are not to lead to performances that would turn the assembly meetings to chaos. This had happened in the past, but it was not to continue in the future. It's obvious that many who practice those spectacular sign gifts that Paul had said were temporary, belonging only to the infant church, go astray from these inspired rules when they supposedly exercise them. This, in itself, emphasizes the counterfeit nature of the present-day tongues movement. The true nature of this movement is exposed by God's Word. It stands for disruption rather than for unity. However, it is intended to lead to Satan's type of false unity. It's a part of the same slime that Satan once used to unify those bricks in building his Tower of Babel. It's designed to produce an artificial unity that will eventually lead to the great world church. The movement has very definite ecumenical overtones. God's word says that all things should be done decently and in order. Let's follow his instructions as we go about our work of edifying, building up the one body, the church. We've just covered the scripture passages that deal with the subject of speaking with tongues. In light of the teachings of these passages, we must, for biblical reasons, reject the present-day tongues movement. Let me summarize these biblical reasons. First, let's consider spirit baptism and tongues. Exponents of the tongues movement often make Holy Spirit baptism and speaking in tongues inseparable. An accepted spokesman for the movement recently said, but if you want the full spiritual freedom God has for you, what the New Testament calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need to let him guide your voice to speak as the Spirit gives utterance. Yet, as we've seen in the Bible, there is no command given for the believer to seek spirit baptism. There's a very good reason. Every true believer has already been baptized by God's Spirit. Recall that Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 makes it clear that if a person does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. Paul writes, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. A comparison of Acts chapter 10 verses 43 through 48 with Acts chapter 11 verses 15 through 18 will show that the following expressions refer to the same thing. The Holy Ghost fell on them, was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Received the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost fell on them, baptized with the Holy Ghost. Therefore, to be baptized in the Spirit means that one has received the Spirit. But does not the book of Acts prove that tongues and spirit baptism are inseparable? No, for several reasons. First, because in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, God's Spirit was promised to all who could repent and be baptized. 3,000 responded to that promise, yet there is no indication that any of them spoke in tongues. Second, as we brought out in earlier messages, tongues in the book of Acts 
had a special purpose. God was announcing to Israel that he was doing something new. The men of Israel were addressed and were told that God was offering remission of sins and his Holy Spirit to those who would repent and be baptized by the authority, that is, in the name of Jesus Christ, and that this offer was not only to Israelites on an individual basis, but also to Gentiles, to all that are far off. And that's found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 39. It's clear that speaking in tongues occurred elsewhere in Acts, probably at Samaria, in the house of Cornelius, and at Ephesus, to convince Jewish believers that God's new program included people of various ethnic backgrounds by giving to these people the same gift he had given the Jewish believers in Acts chapter 2. Next, let's consider the spiritual gifts in tongues. Two things should be noted. First, the purpose of spiritual gifts was not to make holy the individuals who possessed them. The believers in Corinth had all of the spiritual gifts, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7, yet they fought with each other because of envy and strife, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. Instead, the purpose of the spirituals was to benefit the whole congregation. That's why verses 4 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that while there is one spirit, there are many gifts. Verses 12 through 31 of the same chapters says that while there is one body, there are many members. Each member is equipped to function in the body through the spiritual gifts entrusted to him. That's why the gift of prophecy is greater than the gift of tongues. Prophecy can benefit the congregation without the need for an interpreter, that is a translator. The second thing to be noted is that certain gifts, that is tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, are singled out and said to be temporary in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. It's proper to ask why these three gifts are placed together and what these gifts have in common. The answer is that all three gifts are means of revelation. This can be seen by comparing 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2 with 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 1 through 5 and verses 26 through 33. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge are described as in part, and when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Perfect does not mean sinless. Instead, it means that which attains a goal or a purpose. The goal or purpose in verse 10 is the opposite of in part. In other words, the goal or purpose is fullness or completion. When that which is complete comes, when the partial or incomplete will no longer be needed. If we ask partial what or complete what, we should remember that what these three gifts have in common is that they are means of revelation. When complete revelation comes, the gifts that have the partial revelation will no longer be needed. Before complete revelation came, people saw through a brass reflector dimly, but now that revelation has been completed, we see through a mirror clearly. We see ourselves as though we were standing face to face with our own image, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. Faith, hope, and love, agape, abide, remain, even after the temporary gifts are gone, according to verse 13, so the point at which the temporary gifts are done away cannot be the return of Christ because at that time faith will become sight and hope will become reality, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 24 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7.
I'm so glad that you've joined us for today's broadcast. Welcome to the Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to visit with you by radio through another message from God's Word. For the past three weeks, I've been bringing a series of messages that I call Speaking with Tongues. This study has considered those passages of Scripture that deal with this most controversial subject. In this way, we've been able to bring out the true teachings of God's Word. It must be concluded that the current tongues movement in the church today must be rejected as unscriptural. At the close of the last broadcast, I was summarizing the biblical reasons for this conclusion. Let me open the final message of this series by reading Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There are several reasons why we must reject today's movement toward speaking with tongues. The most significant of these have been brought out as we considered the scriptures upon which the tongues movement is based. However, there are three categories of reasons for rejecting this current trend. These can be categorized as biblical reasons, theological reasons, and practical reasons. We've covered most of the biblical reasons, but there is yet one more. Let's consider spiritual fruit and tongues. Some tongue speakers contend that if believers are nowhere commanded to be baptized in the Spirit, they certainly are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. This is found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Two answers can be given in response to this. First, as one continues to read from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 through chapter 6 and verse 19, he's impressed that the result of being filled with the Spirit is not speaking with tongues, but rather joy, according to verse 19, thankfulness, according to verse 20, submission of wife to husband in verses 21 through 33, of children to parents in Ephesians uh, 6, 1 through 4, of employers, or rather of employees to employers in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, and spiritual strength in verses 10 through 19. Second, an examination of Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 26 shows that speaking with tongues is not listed as a part of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, to be filled with the Spirit does not demand that one speak in tongues. Now, let's consider theological reasons. At the top of the list is authority. Some time ago, a magazine printed an article critical of speaking with tongues. Two ministers responded. One was from an old-time Pentecostal power denomination, and the other was a charismatic pastor of a mainline, non-tongue-speaking denomination. They said that the experience of today's charismatics refuted the anti-tongues article. This raises the issue, what should be our authority in deciding whether or not speaking with tongues is valid for today? Is experience our authority, or is it the Bible? According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Bible is inspired by God and profitable for what one believes and how one lives. Even when our experience comes from God, it must be interpreted in the light of God's Word. Human experience is unable to explain how people in non-Christian and pagan religions are able to speak with tongues. Only the Bible is competent to tell us and it alone is qualified to state whether or not tongues are a gift for today. As Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the spirituals 
can be counterfeited by the powers of darkness. What is our means of spiritual strength? Many tongue speakers claim their devotional tongue helps in living the Christian life from day to day. We mentioned earlier that even when speaking with tongues existed as a genuine gift from God, its purpose was not private or devotional, but congregational and revelational. A larger issue is raised, however, by this idea of speaking with tongues as a daily spiritual boost. Traditionally, there have been two ways in which religious people have tried to seek divine help and strength. One way involved the emptying of one's mind. This is the way of the Eastern religions, and to a certain extent, it's the way of Babylonian-oriented so-called Christian sects. It's the way of transcendental med meditation. Unfortunately, it's also the way of speaking with tongues. The other way of seeking God's help and strength is the way outlined in the Bible by God himself as he spoke of, of his perfect son in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his seasons. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Meditation, as the Bible uses the term, does not mean emptying one's mind. It's just the opposite. It means to fill the mind with the promises of God's word so that one can think about them, claim them, and obey them. What about the concept of works righteousness? In making the following point, it's possible for a misunderstanding to develop. Some might think that I'm inferring that if a person does speak with tongues, he's not a Christian. That conclusion is wrong. The point I wish to make is simply this. By making the fullness of God's Spirit depend upon something more than saving faith for salvation, the tongue speaker is saying that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not win all of the benefits of salvation for him, and that now he must do certain things, pray, beg, cry, and so forth, in order to possess God's power in fullness. This is a denial in practice of salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. If this criticism seems harsh, then someone should explain why a famous tongue-speaking layman's group adds the words full gospel to the name of its businessmen's fellowship. Does it really have a fuller gospel than we who do not speak with tongues? Does it have a fuller gospel than that defined by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4? The title of the organization seems to suggest that they think so. Therefore, it is entirely proper to say that there are hints of a works righteousness concept in the tongue-speaking viewpoint. Now, let's consider practical reasons. At the top of our list is pride. Some time ago, a Christian magazine printed an article by the pastor of a church of an Arminian denomination. While they did not normally speak with tongues, neither did they strongly oppose it. After having a group of tongue speakers in his church for about a year, he drew some conclusions. He said, these persons arrived on the scene with smiles and handshakes and praises to the Lord. They carried their Bibles and became a part of the congregation's program and fellowship. However, after some months, it was obvious that they had a spiritual superiority complex and it became obnoxious. Other pastors with whom I have talked have had similar experiences. There's often a know-it-all attitude among those who speak in tongues that exactly contradicts what they profess in testimony. They definitely give 
the impression that those who do not speak in tongues have not arrived spiritually, do not have the sensitivity to interpret the scriptures, and do not have prayer power that can bring results. The tongues movement is seeking an unscriptural unity. In the past, churches that were considered Bible-believing did not cooperate with leaders in the papal church organization. Even the traditional Pentecostal power denominations would have nothing to do with so-called Christian priesthood. This refusal to cooperate was based upon the belief that papal theology denied that salvation is offered to each, each person on the basis that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ satisfied all of God's demands for righteousness. The means of having one's own sins forgiven were sacramental in such theology rather than complete trust in Jesus Christ. Today, however, this biblical barrier of separation has been broken down and, tongue-speaking, people from all kinds of religious groups work together. The result is unscriptural disunity. While promoting an unscriptural unity, the tongues movement at the same time has fostered an unscriptural disunity. Many examples could be given where the tongues issue has destroyed families, split churches, and splintered denominations. Some may wonder why the blame is put on the tongue speaker rather than on those in the splits who were against speaking with tongues. The answer is quite simple. Those who opposed speaking in tongues stood for the original viewpoint of the family, the church, or the denomination. And then there's the subject of worldliness. Can it really be that the tongues movement has a worldliness about it? Unfortunately, the answer is yes in several ways. First, by placing one's experience above the Bible, the tongues movement encourages a freedom that cannot be regulated by God's word. Second, those who speak with tongues but still belong to liberal religious groups often bring their worldly habits with them. There are many good and godly Christians in the tongues movement, but this does not mean that the movement itself is of God. The message of the Bible has been distorted in this movement to the point where speaking with tongues is the evidence of godliness. Important theological truths have been ignored in the tongues movement. Godliness is claimed through something other than faith in Jesus Christ. One's experience is placed above the Bible in deciding what ideas are wrong or right. There are practical reasons for rejecting the tongues movement. A proper humility, along with a scriptural unity and separation, is found only in God's Word. Let's read it for knowledge and wisdom, and let's obey it to be spiritual and godly. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. The Bible stands and it will listening to Wayne Carver, Bible Expositor, teaching another Bible lesson on the Bible stands. This broadcast presents the complete verbal inspiration, the total inerrancy and the absolute authority of God's Word over human life, and its ministry of benefit to everyone in our troubled times. Every lesson is available for your review on cassette tape when requested by those who support this ministry with their tax-deductible gifts and offerings. To continue the broadcast on your station, please send your financial support, your Bible questions, and your request for cassette tapes to Wayne Carver at the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast. 
This program is sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast. Post Office Box 690-008. That's Post Office Box 690-008. San Antonio, Texas 78269.